Now, a general theme for our preaching since the beginning of January has been that we want to see Jesus. Who is this man? We want to know him as he's revealed in Scripture. We want to know how he fits into our lives and how he fits into our world. With this desire in mind, let's turn to John 12, starting with verse 12, and read the gospel text for today. It's on page 821 in your few Bible, if you'd like to look it up there. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. One of the difficulties that we have with Palm Sunday and its story is that we're so familiar with it that we're liable to miss the impact of the picture of Jesus that we see in this Palm Sunday event. In the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, we see Jesus taking center stage and making strong and dramatic statements about his identity. So I'd like to take a fresh look at this story this morning and look at Jesus because we want to see Jesus. Now, Jesus and his disciples have been traveling from Galilee on the way to Jerusalem for the Passover. We pick up the story on Saturday night in the village of Bethany, about two or three kilometers outside of Jerusalem. And they're in the home of Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, and they're having a a dinner supper together. Uh, To better understand what's going on in this story, well, let let me hang on there. John makes it very plain to us that this is the same Lazarus that Jesus brought back from the dead. And this is going to be a little bit more important as we go through this story of, of the triumphal entry. Now, the next morning, Jesus resumes his journey to Jerusalem, And the road to Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims on their way to the Passover. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, at Passover, Jerusalem would be quadrupled in in population, completely packed with people. Now, not only are there crowds heading to Jerusalem, there's also crowds of people coming from Jerusalem back to Bethany because they have heard that Jesus is in Bethany with Lazarus, who had been dead. And they're coming to see Lazarus, and they're coming to see the man who brought him back from the dead. Somewhere between Bethany and Jerusalem, these two crowds of people collide. And you get gridlock. You get a traffic jam. But it didn't last long, because with Jesus at the center, it quickly became a parade. Now, the Gospel of John tells us that somewhere along the road, Jesus happens to find a donkey and he climbs up on his back. This is unusual. This is where you get one of these little hints from the gospel writer that something's different. Up to this point, we've seen seen Jesus go from one point to the other by one of two modes of transportation. 
He either walks or he rides in a boat. We have never seen Jesus on an animal up to this point. So why now does he ride a donkey? Well, Mark's gospel adds some details that John leaves out. Jesus sends two disciples to an address where they will find a donkey, one that has never been ridden, and they are to bring the donkey to Jesus. And if anyone says to them, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it. And that is exactly what happened. The two were challenged, and they said, the Lord needs it, and everyone was fine with the deal. It almost gets the feel that Jesus had prearranged this with the owners of the donkey. My men will come. You ask, who, what's this for? You say, the Lord, they'll say, the Lord needs it. You'll know that it's for me. Then we see in that little brief hint that Jesus is really the one in charge here. He's in charge of the events of the day. This isn't an accident. And in the action of the day, we see Jesus make several bold statements. Now, to better understand these statements and what they mean, I want to look at the story from three different angles. I want to look at it from a biblical angle, an historical angle, and also a political angle. First, the biblical angle. In the triumphal entry, we see reminders of different Old Testament stories related to two different kings. When David was fleeing from King Saul, his father-in-law who was trying to kill him, he rode a donkey on several occasions. This was especially true where he encounters uh, Abigail. No, what was her name? Got one of those moments when the name disappeared. Somebody he married. Uh, then as an old man, he's again riding a donkey. A, a donkey's brought to him as he's escaping from his son Absalom, who's trying to take over the kingdom. So we have this idea of, of David being a man who rode a donkey. But what happened in, in, in this Sunday on the road to Jerusalem reflects another story, an Old Testament story that is the laying of the coats on the road. See here in the bottom of the picture, the men are are putting their coats there on the ground. And that reminds us of a story in 2 Kings chapter 9. It's the story of Jehu being enthroned as the king of Israel. And we read in, in verse 13, Then they quickly spread their cloaks on the bare steps and blew the ram's horn, shouting, Jehu is king. So you've got these two Old Testament stories that those people in the crowd might remember. David riding on a donkey, David maybe the greatest king of, of Israel, and Jehu having people put down their cloaks on the stairs as he mounts to the throne to become the king. Both underline the identity of Jesus as king. More importantly, though, is the fact that Jesus riding on a donkey is in fact a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Zechariah 9.9. And John makes sure we don't miss this point. As he says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, another biblical angle is seen in the words of the crowd. Everything they say is from the Bible. As a matter of fact, everything they say is from the Psalms. Hosanna, blessed is the one who, cames, who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hosanna means save us. 
sometimes we'll translate it as praise, but it means literally save us. The words are from Psalm 118. We just read from Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you. O Lord, O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, Psalm 113 to 118, those psalms are called the Hallel. It's a a part of the Old Testament that had a large part to play in the Passover. In fact, you might say that those psalms, 113 to 118, are the worship music of the Passover. There's there's, There's different voices in Psalm 118 that you may have heard or may not have heard. There's the voices of the pilgrims as they come up to the temple gates And they finally say, open for us the gate of the temple. And then there's the words of the the priest who welcomed them. And they would recite those words every Passover as they would come to the temple for worship. But the other thing that happened at Passover is at the Passover meal, they sang as a family, or in the case of Jesus, it is 12, as, as the disciples. They sang before the meal. They sang after the meal. Remember that as Jesus and his disciples get ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, they sing a hymn. They are singing the Hallel. They are singing these very psalms that, that we're looking at here in Psalm 118. But the telling phrase is, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Messiah is the coming one, the one who comes. And by the time that Jesus had arrived, that had become a title for the Messiah. Shortly before his death, John the Baptist sent messages to Jesus with a question. And the question was, are you the coming one or should we look for another? Are you the Messiah? You see, what Jesus was doing didn't exactly match up with John the Baptist's expectations of what the Messiah would be and what he would do. So he says, are you the Messiah, the coming one? And Jesus doesn't give him a direct answer. He says, well, just go tell John what you see. Jesus has been keeping this a bit of a secret that he's the Messiah. He's, he's shrouded himself in a certain mystery. And even when his disciples say that he's the Messiah, he tells them to keep quiet about it, to keep it to themselves. But now, on this Palm Sunday, we see Jesus putting his identity as the Messiah on display. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the Messiah. And the crowds cry to him, Hosanna, save us. We think it might be a little different. It might be what you see in England when the people say, what about the queen? What do they say about the queen? God save the queen. It may be God save the king. Jesus is coming as the king, and these crowds may be singing, some of them, Savior, save us, or they may be saying, God, save the king. They're celebrating the arrival of the king. So what we see in the triumphal entry can only be understood in the biblical context of messianic expectation, expectation that is thousands of years old. And now Jesus is saying, the Messiah has come. But there's also some historical notes in this triumphal entry. A little history, Alexander the Great, you remember him, he died at the age of 32 after conquering the most part of the world that was important in that day. 
And uh, when he died, his empire was broken into four parts. The nation of Israel became part of the Seleucid Empire, which was the biggest section of, his, of Alexander's empire. It extended from the Mediterranean Sea into India. It was enormous. The Israelites were loosely governed by that empire for over 100 years until the reign of Antiochus IV. That's, you see, a coin with Antiochus on it. In 168 B.C., he banned the temple worship by the Jews. You can no longer worship in your temple. And a year later, in 167 B.C., he ordered that the temple in Jerusalem be given over to the worship of Zeus. And that year, he began sacrificing pigs on the altar in Jerusalem. That's the guy who did it, Antiochus. You can all say boo if you want. Good, well done. Well done. Now, that prompted a riot. Actually, it prompted a revolution. It was the trigger for what we know as of the Maccabean Revolt, led by the sons of a priest named Matthias. The best known of these was Judas Maccabeus. What does Maccabeus mean? It's not their family name. It just simply means the hammer. He's Judas the hammer is what we'd call him today. Good name for a wrestler, don't you think? Judas the hammer. In 165 BC, under the leadership of Judas, the rebels retook parts of Jerusalem. They recaptured the temple. And they rededicated it to God. They cleaned it and rededicated it to the worship of God. And the Jews celebrate that event every year at the festival of Hanukkah in December. They're celebrating the, the, the victory of Judas and the cleansing and rededication of the temple. Now, in 141 B.C., Judas's little brother Simon, he was the only one left of the brothers. The rest had all been killed off. Simon led the rebels and retook the final Seleucid Syrian fortress in Jerusalem, and they captured it. And that's when they became an independent country in in effect. And you find this verse in the first book of Maccabees, which is part of the Jewish Apocrypha. On the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171, which on our calendar would be 141 B.C., the Jews entered the fortress with praise and palm branches with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs. A great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Palm branches didn't mean anything up to that point, really. They're not connected to Jerusalem in any way. Palm branches are connected with Jericho, which is a city of palms. That's where they grow. But for some reason, Simon, as he led those worshiping celebrants into that fortress, they waved palm branches in praise and worship to God who gave them the victory. And they sang songs of worship and praise with cymbals and stringed instruments as they recaptured that fortress. So the use of palm branches in a victory celebration goes back to that date in 164, 165, when they, or 141, I'm sorry, when they recaptured the fortress. 
Now, after the Maccabean revolt, the Jews were more or less in control of their own country until 63 BC, about 80 years when the Romans took it over. They had their own kings. They were the Hasmonean dynasty of kings. Uh, but they really never accomplished very much. So that's the historical. Now they're, they're longing, the Jews are longing for another Judas the Hammer to come along and give them victory over the Romans. So that's the biblical and the historical. Now let's look at the political angle to the story. Thanks to the Maccabeans, this palm branch has become essentially a national symbol in Israel. The image of the palm branch is stamped on Jewish coins, as you see in, in these. One on the left looks a little bit nicer than the one on the right, but they're both palm branches on the Jewish coins. The palm branch had become something like a national flag would be to Americans in terms of how it fit into their political life. For these people to be waving palm branches on that day, on Palm Sunday, it would be like you standing out on Portage of Maine on Canada Day for a parade, raising, waving a Canadian flag. It was a bit of a political act. And in fact, it was a very risky act to be standing out there waving palm branches because they were an occupied government that did not like signs of rebellion or independence. That was not a safe thing to do, to wave those palm branches, because it was a political action. Now, another emphasis of the triumphal entry was the identification of Jesus, the Messiah, as the King of Israel. We've already seen this was part of the prophecy in Zechariah. We now see it in the patriotic and nationalistic cries of the people as they wave their national symbol, they wave their palm branches. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. If you think it's risky for them to wave a palm branch with Pilate in the neighborhood, in the Roman legions, it's even more risky to proclaim that they have a king. They've had kings on and off since 141 B.C., but most of the time they were just puppet kings. They had no power. They really didn't do anything. What these Jews want is a real king, another Maccabean king. So there's a political element even in what they say when they shout glory and blessed be the one who is the king, the coming king. They have a vision of what their future looks like and it looks to them like another Maccabean revolt and another king who throws out the Romans. Now I'd like to take this opportunity to see one more picture of Jesus. I want us to see Jesus in another light as we look at this story and we figure out what is the true identity of this man. It's not found in the Gospel of John. We have to go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, to see this. Luke 19, verse 41. As he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep over it. We see this crowd that's excited and, and, and cheering and yelling. We see Jesus on a donkey. We've never seen him on a donkey before. And we see him weeping. Weeping. He weeps for two reasons. It seems odd to us. He's surrounded by all these people who are praising him and saying, God save the king or 
save us now. He weeps for two reasons. First, he knows that in just a little over 30 years, the city of Jerusalem will be completely destroyed by the Romans. The only thing left of it will be part of the foundation wall of the temple, which is now the wailing wall for the people who live in Israel. It will be destroyed. And that's sad and tragic. And, and thousands and thousands of people died in that battle. And the rest were put into exile. But there's something even more tragic and sad than that. Something worse. We hear Jesus say, you did not recognize it when God visited you. That's really why he's weeping. He's come as the Messiah. People see him. They acknowledge him. But they're not truly recognizing who he is. Even as he comes as their Messiah, the nation doesn't recognize him. The donkey, the palm branches, the words from Psalm 118, they see, they hear, but they don't recognize him. Why? It's very simple. He was not the Messiah that they expected. He was not the Messiah that they wanted. They wanted another Judas Maccabeus who would put the hammer to their enemy. But the Jesus weeping is the man that we need to see this morning. Because the picture reminds us, if we're attentive, that just as those who were in that crowd 2,000 years ago who saw Jesus but did not recognize him, it's possible for us to see Jesus and not truly recognize who he is. We have expectations of Jesus that he's more like a kindly uncle who will take care of us now and then and make our life a little bit more comfortable. Or maybe we think of Jesus like a magician who, if we ask him, he can just wave a wand and make bad things disappear from our lives. And sometimes we even think of Jesus a bit like a cash machine that we can put a card into and money will magically come out. Stuff that we need to support our choice of a lifestyle. See, we can allow our expectations of who Jesus is to seduce us into seeing a false picture of who he is. If we don't see him as he is, we cannot truly follow him where he goes. And we need to start with this picture of Jesus weeping over those who don't recognize him who he is. So who is he? There are two pictures that bookend the ministry of Jesus. They're different, and yet they're pretty much the same. On Good Friday, the day we call Good Friday, we see Pilate presenting a mocked and beaten figure to the crowds who are calling for his death. And he says to the crowds, Behold the man. Look at the man. What do they see? What do they see? Pilate didn't have any idea, apparently, who Jesus was. He just knew that the Sanhedrin feared him and wanted him out of the way. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
John the Baptist had a clear vision of who Jesus was, unlike Pilate. Pilate didn't know the identity of Jesus. John did. But both pictures point to the Lamb of God who has come to die for the sins of the world. Jesus with Pilate was already entering into his crucifixion and his death. This is the Jesus we need to see, the one who walked to a cross and died for us. What do we do once we recognize that that's Jesus who died for us, who suffered for us? What do we do? What's our response to this Jesus once we see him? The choice to follow Jesus is truly a life-changing decision. The five who were baptized this morning have declared themselves publicly to be followers of Jesus. It was fun, wasn't it? There are many parts of the world that if a person publicly was baptized as a follower of Jesus, there's a good chance that they might very soon die. And not failing that, if they're not killed, they would be ostracized from family, from community, that lose their job, that lose their standing, that lose everything. We, we don't experience that in Canada, but they do in many parts of the world. It is a serious thing to declare publicly, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I will do that no matter what it costs. And that's the question that they answered as Justina asked it this morning. Will you follow Jesus no matter what it cost? And they said yes. But there's an even more sobering thought to baptism than that. Those who were baptized this morning have declared to us their own death already. Not as something that might happen, but as something that has happened. Going under the water as they did is a symbol of their burial. They were declaring that with Christ, they have died. There's something about them that is now dead. They've put something of themselves to death by virtue of their choosing to follow Jesus and be baptized. Paul says it this way in the book of Romans, or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. Jesus expects us to carry a cross if we would follow him. And the only reason you carried a cross was to die. Well, there was one exception. Simon helped Jesus carry his cross because he'd been so tormented and and humiliated and beaten that he could no longer physically carry it. Everybody else that carried a cross died on that cross. How do we respond to the Jesus that we see as the Lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world? We die. There was an 8th century Orthodox priest, Eastern Orthodox, who lived in, in Turkey primarily. And he wrote these words for Palm Sunday that are just as useful for us today as they were 1,200 years ago. It is ourselves that we must spread under Christ's feet. Not coats, 
or lifeless branches or shoots of trees, matter which wastes away and delights the eyes only for a few brief hours. We have clothed ourselves with Christ's grace, with the whole Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So let us spread ourselves like coats under his feet. That's our challenge on Palm Sunday. Not just to sing praises and say what a great day it was and what a wonderful event, but to lay down our lives for Jesus, to say he is so wonderful that nothing else in life really matters. He is what counts now in my life, not me. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to just look at this event and, and say that's a beautiful story and a wonderful thing that people waved branches and cheered and yelled. We want to be people who see you as you are, the sacrificial lamb of God, and that that triumphal entry was just a step toward you becoming the man on the cross who died for us. And as we see you on that cross, we want to put aside our lives for you and live for you, not for ourselves. Follow you, not follow our own desires or plans. Be where you want us to be, doing what you want us to do. This is how we celebrate Palm Sunday. How we lay down our lives on the road for you, not just our cloaks. Help us to do that. And as we sing our hymn together now, Father, help us to see Jesus even as we sing. As we sing these words, help us to have a sharper vision of who Jesus is. We ask it in his name. Amen.